The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Good morning, Delta. Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 18. Please stand when you're ready to read God's word. If you don't have a copy of Scripture in front of you, you can use one of the Black Pew Bibles. Our passage this morning is Leviticus 18. Um, Instead of 1 through 30, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 18 through 30, okay? And this can be found in the Black Pew Bible on page 90. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. We'll skip down to verses 18 through 30. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Melech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as a, with a woman. It is abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal and to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, and so that I punished and so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it is vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As we round out of our sermon uh, that we looked at last week, chapters 16 and 17, and specifically as we focused on chapter 16, uh, if you see in your Bible, sometimes a good study Bible will help you see that the remaining uh, chapters in Exodus... Leviticus 18 down through uh, the remainder of of the book, what you will typically see described as these chapters as the holiness code. That's the phrase that is typically applied to the back half of Leviticus because it is truly God's law, God's word given to his people saying, in light of who I am as your redeemer, in light of of who I am as your Lord, the living God, Yahweh, the one who took you out of Egypt and is taking you into the land of promise. I am the one who's going to show you how to walk in confession of sin, to show you what it looks like to worship me through the sacrifices that we read about. He instituted priests to work as the mediators between God and the men, the people, the women of Israel. We eventually come to the place where the question is like, well, what does that look like in everyday life? How does the command, be holy as I am holy, work itself out 
in everyday life. And that answer to that question is what the back half of Leviticus is about. As it relates to things such as marriage, family, sexuality, as we're going to learn about today, the leaders of Israel with its priests, celebration days, high and holy days, Sabbaths, jubilee, feasts, all these sorts of things, you're going to see how God is going to say all of life is the avenue, the playground, so to speak, where holiness is to be played out. And that's why this morning I've titled our sermon this morning, Holiness and Sexuality. Holiness and Sexuality, because that is what is before us in Leviticus 18, and you see the back half of this thinking in Leviticus chapter 20, and that's why I encourage you to read that before this Sunday. If we want to summarize these 30 verses in front of us, I think we can summarize it like this, and it should be up on the screen behind me. To be in the world, but not of the world, means something for the Jesus people. For anyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we are the Jesus people. So to be in the world, but not of the world, means something for Jesus people. The Jesus people will, two things, abstain from sexual immorality and embrace gospel hope for sexual sinners. I think what we have in front of us in Leviticus 18 are these three truths. You're going to see the truth that we are called as Jesus people to be in the world but not of the world. We're going to see the truth that God is revealing his will for us as it relates to sexuality. And that is to abstain from certain forms of sexuality, sexual immorality, but then ultimately we're also to be a people who embrace gospel hope. Gospel hope for sinners, yes, and more narrowly, gospel hope for sexual sinners. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would empower the preaching of the Word. I'm going to ask that you join in with me during this prayer. Maybe what you can do right now is look left, look right, look at the people sitting in the row with you, and do this. Go to bat in prayer for them. Ask God, will you open my eyes to see Jesus and my need for him from a text like Leviticus 18? God, would you open my mind to understand what is being said here? You just need to know the content of Leviticus 18 is vehemently raged against in our culture today. There's something very countercultural going on in Leviticus 18, but it's rooted and grounded in a good, loving, merciful, gracious God who has flourishing and life designed for you within these boundaries of Leviticus 18. And we sometimes just can't see that. And we need God the Spirit to open our eyes to see it. So let's just ask him to do that in prayer together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we see your word before us, and the desire of our heart is to walk in obedience to what you've revealed to us. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given in the Scriptures. And that includes Leviticus 18, the chapter before us. It means something for us as Jesus' people. So, Father, I'm asking that you would receive the glory you're worthy to receive as a result of the word preached. Holy Spirit, I am asking that you would grant the gift of unction, that you would grant the gift of clear, empowered preaching this morning so that the word would work like a scalpel, cutting us to the very heart and soul so that we would be changed, shaped, molded deeper into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, I'm asking that you, by your power and your might, would open our eyes to see you and open our mind to understand why it is good news that you have said what you've said this morning, but it is good news that we can come to you because if all of us are honest, we are men and women who need that gospel hope because we are sexual sinners. Lord, magnify the gospel. Lord, magnify the gospel 
of Jesus this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I am deeply persuaded, goes the quote, that when it comes to sex, we've gone culturally insane. In his book, Sex in a Broken World, Paul Tripp continues with this quote by saying this, the level of functional delusion, the level of self-deception, the level of self-destruction that accompanies the way we approach sex is simply crazy. You don't have to look very far to see that we've gone sex insane, he says. We put sex in a place it was never intended to be, but we seem to fail to see the danger. All this means, says Tripp, that we are in big trouble because what the human community tends to look at as normal is not normal at all. It is a web of descending degrees of madness, end quote. A simple observation of the world around us, a simple observation of scrolling through the newsfeed on your phone or your TV at night as you're checking out the news or if you're going to the movies, just a simple observation of the world around us reveals what Tripp has just said is absolutely, absolutely true. Graphic sexual language has become acceptable and is common in the vocabulary of primetime TV. Pornography exists on mainstream internet sites that are literally just a Google click away. In Facebook videos, in Instagram streams, in Reddit threads, in YouTube searches, in Snapchat sexting, in TikTok videos, we all carry with ourselves handheld portals that allow instant access to sex. The news is littered daily with sex scandals. Religious institutions and denominations are guilty of sexual abuse cover-ups. Local libraries and public spaces host drag queen story hours for children. Even cultural cornerstones such as entertainment and education are inundated with phraseology that is meant to normalize this sexual insanity. Phrases like, love is love. Phrases like, love wins. Or in the lyrics of our popular music, you can hear lyrics such as the song sung by Lady Gaga, no matter gay, straight, or bi, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. I'm beautiful in my way because God makes no mistakes. Notice how she is leaning on a theological statement to support her claim and her view of sexuality. Don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself. That is the common theme of our worldview today. Love is love. Self-love is supreme. Don't hide yourself in regret, just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Most prominently, we see the sex and sanity of our culture championed in a month like the month we find ourselves in, the month of June, a month that is known as Pride Month, where in this month of June, what is set aside is all that pertains to LGBTQ, and we set it aside in our culture to celebrate it, to champion it to run it to every far corner that we can so that all things pertaining to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, questioning, plus sign, everything else that might slide into that sexual ideology, it's just ubiquitous. It's everywhere you go. It is Pride Month. The invitation has come, take pride in this view of sexuality. So whether it's flags in the shop windows that you walk past as you're going downtown, whether it's you scrolling through your social media profile pictures, whether it's corporate logos that are now colored with rainbow hues, all of these things roll together proudly pledging allegiance to the sexual insanity of our day and the invitation and the demand hidden in that invitation is you must come and do the same. If you do not pledge allegiance to the sexual insanity of the day, then you are the one that's out of step. You are the one that is antiquated. You are the one who needs to, quote, get on the right side of history. 
So in our sex-saturated, sex-obsessed culture, the question that we need to think about as believers is this simple question here. How are we to think about this stuff? Like, are we to think about this stuff? Like, does it really matter? Are we adhering to something that's truly antiquated? Do we need to get on the right side of history? Is the stuff regarding sex that we find in God's word to us stupid? Is it ridiculous? Is it to be chucked out the window because that was for those people back then? We are moderns after all, and we can think differently. We can think more freely. How are we to think about these things, especially when we come across a chapter like Leviticus 18? But not only how are we to think about these things, the question is how are we to live? This is a question of belief and behavior. Are we to believe something according to God? Has God revealed something for us for life, for flourishing? But not only that, are we then to behave in line with what we believe? For a lot of us, this isn't arm's length theological debate. This is present tense in my lap reality. As you're thinking through belief according to God's word and the behavior that is to align and commensurate with someone who claims the name of Christ. Why? Because your workplace is asking you to put gay pride stickers on. To put a flag inside your cubicle. Some of us are asking these questions because your brother or your sister, your aunt or your uncle, your mom or dad have come out as transgender, have come out saying that they are homosexual. See, this isn't just arm length stuff, this is real life kind of stuff. And Leviticus 18 lands in our lap in a very pertinent month where all these things just get heightened and put in front of us, and it's good and it's wise for us to ask the question, how are we to think? That is, how are we to believe? How are we to live? That is, how are we to behave? Because what we're talking about is not just a 21st century problem only. It was an ancient Israel problem as well, which is why Leviticus 18 comes to us, and it is a pertinent word for our times. What we're about to read isn't some just ancient text for those ancients way back then, and we're just going to say like, well, that's nice that somebody used to believe like that, and then just chuck it out the window. We need to ask ourselves if it is true, according to 2 Peter 1, that everything we need for life, eternal life, Life in the sense of flourishing under God's good rule and reign over our lives. If everything we need for godliness is given us to his word, then what we need to do is take Leviticus 18 seriously and ask, what is it teaching us? What can we learn about these things? We've got three points this morning, and they're all going to come right out of Leviticus 18. And it's going to first be this, the first point, that God's redeemed people are to be in the world, but not of the world. God's redeemed people are to be in the world, but not of the world. And this is just sort of hitting my mind. This is just not even in my notes. Before we dive in and go further, I think I want to say this as an aside for us is that the reason why some of these topics pertaining to sexuality can tend to be so controversial is because we as Christians have done a very poor job of thinking through these things clearly, and then we've done a very poor job of loving those who are in opposition to us. You've seen him before. The guy downtown with the, with the sign, turn or burn. Bullhorn guy at the gay pride parade just screaming, vitriolic acidic hatred into the faces of those created in the image of God to the shame of and I'm talking broad speaking Christian church we've done a very poor job of loving others like we've been loved in Christ so what you need to know is that as we're talking about this this morning this is not fuel for us to go out and do 
those things that I was talking about. This isn't an invitation to go out and be bullhorn guy, to be turn or burn guy, to be God hates homosexuals guy, to get in people's faces and point your finger and get all red faced and veiny net guy. That, this is, that's not what this is. This is an invitation to humility. To recognize that if every one of us had a wire plugged in the back of our head and it was plastered up on that screen, we would run out of here in shame and humility because we are sexual sinners as well. Just because the Bible talks about such something such as homosexuality does not mean homosexuality is the only sexual sin that God cares about. God cares about heterosexual sin as well. Cares about incest, cares about a polygamy, cares about adultery, cares about bestiality. We're going to talk about some of these things here in a soon. This is an invitation to humility. This is an invitation to grace and mercy. This is an invitation to be slow to speak and quick to listen. This is an invitation to be bold. This is an invitation to be courageous. This is an invitation to be like Jesus. In parenthesis, side sermon done. Back to point number one, okay? In the world, but not of the world. Let's look starting in verse chapter one, or uh, uh, chapter 18, verse one. Look at what God reveals to us here. And the Lord spoke to Moses. What did the Lord, what did Yahweh reveal to him? This. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. When you think of that phrase, in the world but not of the world, uh, I would argue that that is a phrase that has fallen on hard times. To be in the world but not of the world. According to the mercy of God, the people of Israel have been redeemed. If you are in Christ, you are a redeemed one. You're not who you used to be. The people of Israel right now in Leviticus 18 are a redeemed people. Used to be in bondage, used to be in slavery in Egypt. God has performed miracles of salvation in redeeming them and bringing them out. And all of this has been done according to the mercy of God. Now, Yahweh was going to bring them out of Egypt and bring them into the land of Canaan. But what they needed to know, these redeemed people, is that the land, the culture, the ideology, the worship, of Egypt was opposed to God, and they're actually going into another culture, another land, another place where all that was in it was also opposed to God. The culture which they were leaving and the culture to which they were going was saturated, according to Leviticus 18, in sexual confusion. If you've ever wondered what was the sexual climate of Canaan, the land of promise where God is bringing his people. It's verses 6 through 23. This is a delineated list, and I would argue not an exhaustive list, of the kind of sexual perversion that was taking place in the land of Canaan, the place where God was bringing his people. So what we can see is that there was no escaping it. God's people were going to be in the world. But much like a boat is designed to be in water, but not water in the boat, so God's redeemed people were to be in a sex-insane world, but that sex-insane world was not to be in them. In other words, the redeemed people of God are to live as Jesus would eventually come to pray in his high priestly prayer. When he prayed to the Father in John 17, I do not ask, Father. Remember, this is Jesus. He is praying to the Father. He's right on the cusp of going to the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ prays for his people like this. I do not ask that you, Father, take them out of the world, but actually that you keep them from the evil one. And the implication is while they are in the world. They are not of the world, says Jesus, just as I am not of the world. The Apostle Paul would pick this language up in his letter to the Corinthian Christians in chapter 5 when he wrote to these Christians, I wrote to you in my letter, says the Apostle Paul, not, listen, I wrote to you in my letter 
not to associate with sexually immoral people, comma, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, since then you would need to go out of the world. They had misunderstood his meaning there. This comes in the context of 1 Corinthians 5, a man who was sleeping and having sex with his father's wife. Leviticus 18 says something about that. The church in Corinth was going, yeah, look at how gracious and merciful we are. They were championing this. And he says, no, 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 that's not right. This is sexual immorality. It's not to be championed. It's to be repented of and confessed. You see, in their sexuality, God was calling his redeemed people to be holy. Holiness is meant to invade the way we think about sex. To be holy in our sexuality is to be different from the people around us, to be different than what the culture says is the norms for sexuality. Thus, holiness and its relationship to sexuality means that Jesus' people will believe and behave different from the world. Look at what it says in verse 3. Negatively, it says, you shall not walk in their statutes. That's behavior language. He's saying, I know you're going to be in the world. I know you're going to be in this culture that is going to be surrounded in these things, but you are not to behave like the culture around you. The sexual normalcy of the Canaanites is not to be what normatively describes you. So whether you're in Egypt, whether you're in Canaan, whether you're in Springfield, whether you're in school, whether you're on social media, or whether you find yourself in a month that's set aside to celebrate gay pride, you're not to walk in their statutes. You're to be in the world, but not of the world. But notice that it's not just a negative prohibition. Verse 4 gives something positive. Positively, verse 4, Yahweh says to his redeemed people, here's what you shall do, though. You shall follow my rules, keep my statutes, and walk in them. Now, either that's incredibly egotistical. God's a giant egomaniac. You need to do what I tell you to do because I'm in control and I've got control issues. Many will approach God in that way and say, I don't want anything to do with God. How dare he tell me what to do? Or could it just be that the reason why he's saying don't do this but do do this is because God in his sovereignty, God in his omniscience, God in his all-knowing knows what is all good and in his all-knowing of what is all good recognizes that there are certain things that if we do them, live them, believe them, behave them, they will actually be to our detriment, to our death, and not to our flourishing. I would argue it's the latter. That is what is going on here. You shall follow my rules. You shall keep my statutes and walk in them. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. Anytime you hear Leviticus 18 and anytime you hear it in the Old Testament for Yahweh to say, listen, I'm talking to you now. I am the Lord your God. What you need to realize is this. The Israelite of the time would have only heard one thing. He is the God who saved me. He is my king. He is my creator. He is my redeemer. I was lost. I was enslaved. I was in bondage. But God in his kindness, God in his mercy, God in his grace did a delivering act and applied it to me. God is my covenant God. And God is now saying, because this is true, because I'm good and I'm for you, I'm not against you, I'm your redeemer, I'm your creator, I've designed these things, I know what's best for you. Don't do. That's what's going on in front of us right now. To have Yahweh as your God means something. It means he has redeemed you from your sin. It means he is your God and you are now among his people. And it means we now get the joy and the privilege of coming and submitting to God's authority, not just in our sexuality, but in every area of our life. As our creator and king, we, his people, must reflect his holiness by closely following his commands, not in a legalistic sense of duty, this isn't an invitation to just come and buckle down and just do this thing. Just, it's your duty. 
No delight, no enjoyment, no pleasure to be found here. Just dutifully do these things. That is not what is being portrayed here. But it's actually, notice in verse 5, the invitation is don't be of the world. Do be in the world. You're going to be in it. Don't let the world get in you. Why? Why is this not a legalistic sense of duty? But it's actually a good thing. It's because it all hinges on a promise. Look at verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, notice the language of promise, he shall live by them. Life. The promise is life. When we come to the authority of our Creator and say, you are good, meaning your authority is good, meaning your commands are good, and when you tell me, Jonathan, this is for your good, for me to embrace this and to live within the boundary of these limits, what I'm actually doing is entering in and believing a promise that life and flourishing is found to walk by walking in obedience to our God. In other words, the way you will enjoy life is by enjoying life under God's favor, and that comes by walking in obedience to what He says. Anything opposite of God's Word will never bring the flourishing life we are designed to live. What you need to know is that the deception of the world that is around us baits the hook of this deception with the exact opposite language. They would say anything opposite of God's word is where you find flourishing. But God is revealing to us that it is in obedience to his word that is where the flourishing life is found and that is where you and I are designed to live as his creation. So as it relates to sexuality, see, there is a way that seems right to man. But what does the proverb tell us? Even though there is a way that seems right to man, its end is the way to death. Why? Because Canaanite sexuality, which is man-centered sexuality, is not from God. The Canaanite sexuality of our day is not from God. Therefore, all it can do is bring death. So what does this mean then? If you redeemed man, if you redeemed woman, are to be in the world but not of the world, what does this mean when we apply it to our daily lives? It means this, point number two, that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. Sex is good. It's designed by God. There is a God-ordained place for His creation to drink up to the dregs the good gift of sex. But there are a lot of places where if we drink up sex out of these cisterns, it'll be to the damage and to the detriment of our soul. So thus, we discover in verses 6 through 23, God's will for our sexuality if you want to summarize what is going on in verses 6 through 23, it can actually be summarized in the Apostle Paul's words that he wrote to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he said this to these Christians. He said, guys, listen up. This is the will of God for you. Anytime you read that in your Bible, you want to go, you want to scoot forward a little bit. This is the God the Father. Your creator, redeemer, sustainer is saying, if you want to know what I want for you, here is my will. It's just laid out as plain as the ink on the page. Here is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, comma, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So notice he's stitching together this idea of sexuality and holiness. We're not to run after sexuality in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God for God has not called us for impurity, but God has called us in holiness. 
That's 1 Thessalonians 4. So you see, when we begin to take what the Bible says about sex, what we begin to see is this. Sex isn't icky. Sex isn't gross. Sex ought not be embarrassing. It shouldn't be weird. Sex isn't something that Adam and Eve figured out by accident in the Garden of Eden, catching God by surprise. Like he made them one day, two sexual beings with particular organs that just work together in this way, and then he made them and set them in the garden, and then turned around all of a sudden, he turned back and said, what? I didn't mean for that to happen. Like That's not what's going on in the garden. God designed humanity with particular bodily functions to be able to come together and enjoy a very good gift entirely designed by him. It is his creation the way a husband drinks in the beauty of his wife's nakedness, the way a wife derives comfort and protection in the intimate embrace of sexual intercourse, the way a husband and wife melt into ever-deepening oneness as a result of sex, or the way that sex just feels good when a husband and wife do it in the realms of intimacy. All of this is God's idea, contrary to what the culture would tell us. See, I think what's upsetting to me as a Christian and as a pastor is the culture has hijacked sex sort of as their idea. And they're trying to tell us how it should be when it should be reverse because our God who is good says, no, this is my gift and this is my idea and this is my creation and it should be we, the people of Christ, showing the world, no, this is what good sex should look like. You see, sex is a gift from him, from God, to his creatures. Sex is designed to be enjoyed. It's designed to be pleasurable. And it's designed to be pursued. But notice this. The gift of sex comes with boundaries in the Bible. Do you guys see that? This isn't God going, here's sex and have at it. No limits. Do what you want to do with it. Have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, however you want, anytime, any way. This is Burger King sex. Have it your way. You don't see it that way. It's not what's going on in God's Word. The gift of sex comes with boundaries. All you got to do is go back into Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and what you'll discover is that ever before sin entered the world, God looks at Adam and Eve and says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, one man, one woman, in marriage, and they shall become one flesh. Note that God's design from the beginning is one man, one woman, forming one new family. And it's within this boundary that sex was designed for God's glory and our flourishing. In the garden, Adam and Eve were not to have a self-centered, anytime, anyway relationship to sex. They were free to enjoy sex, but their enjoyment was to be done in an attitude of submission and obedience to their Creator. God gave these rules not to destroy pleasure, but to enhance pleasure. Do you guys see the deception and the lie of our culture? The deception and the lie of the culture, the sex-insane mantra of our society today denies what I just said vehemently. When I said God gave rules not to destroy pleasure, but to enhance pleasure, the surrounding culture around us says that is not true. Actually, rules and boundaries and limits do destroy pleasure. There's no way to have pleasure if you are trying to tell me what to do with sex. There's no way to enjoy it if you tell me I cannot have sex with whoever I want to, however I want to, whenever I want to. The modern dogma is that sex is not enjoyable if you're being told how, when, and with whom you can have it. Thus, the worldview of our day promotes the deception of no-limit sex because they cannot see that boundaries and limits are actually for life. Boundary and limits are for flourishing. It'd be like me going out and buying a brand new sports car, giving it to Tommy DeMar and saying, Tommy, take it out to Colorado, man. Let it rip. It's fun to drive. Yes, it's fun to drive. Is it beautiful to look at? Yeah, it's an awesome sports car. Is it fast? It's fast. Is it great steering? Great steering. Have at it. Go for it. You get up into the mountains. You're driving through the mountains, and you're going around a sharp curve. There's a big cliff on the other side, and then someone... 
before you came along and said, you know what, a lot of people in sports cars and fast cars, the big engines and great, they've gone around this curve and they've gone shooting off the cliff, so here's a boundary. I'm going to put up a guardrail so that you don't go careening off the fence off the side of the cliff and go down to your death. And as you're rounding the corner there, you begin to go, curse you, guardrail! How dare you be a boundary to my freedom of expression and driving? No, 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 that, that's a good boundary. It's a limit. So you don't go careening off into your death. Cursing the guardrail is what our culture does with sex. Shakes the fist to the heavens and says, curse this guardrail. How dare it be there? How dare you tell me to see the goodness of this guardrail? The worldview of our day promotes the deception of no limit sex, but by God's design of what we see before us, boundless sex, it just does not exist. So to make clear what God ordained life-giving sex to look like, Yahweh sets the limits for his people that we might be holy in our sexuality. So what are those limits? That's what's going on right now. That's the question I'm asking you. If it's true that there are boundaries designed by God for life and flourishing, what are those boundaries? What are those limits that we're not to transgress? Verses 6 through 23, that's what's in front of us. He says, these are the guardrails. These are what forbidden He prohibits incest, polygamy, adultery, child sacrifice, homosexuality, and bestiality. First, Yahweh prohibited sexual intercourse with close relatives. That's what you find in verse 6. We're just going to look at these pretty quickly here. You can follow along. None of you shall approach any of his close relatives. So there it is, close relatives, to uncovered nakedness. I am the Lord. Verses 6 through 17 prohibit that incestuous sexual relationship. So there's no sexual relations with your mother, verse 7, stepmother, verse 8, sister, verse 9, granddaughter, verse 10, stepsister, verse 11, blood aunt, maternal aunt, 12, 13, and 14, daughter-in-law, verse 15, sister-in-law, verse 16, or a woman and her daughter together, verse 17. These are off-limits. This is your family, close relative. If you think sex and flourishing exist there, you're going to find out they don't. I'm prohibiting it. Don't go there. To uncover the nakedness of these close relatives, he says there at the end of verse 17, it is depravity, says Yahweh. The next, notice in verse 18, the Lord God prohibited two more sexual relationships. One was polygamy. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, And the other was sex willfully done in complete disregard for the holiness of God and ritual cleanliness. That's what you see in verse 19. Verse 19 says, You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in her menstrual uncleanness. It's sort of a weird verse. We're like, what's going on there? If you remember back in Leviticus 15, specifically Leviticus 15, verse 24, God said to his people, if you have sex with a woman while she's in her menstrual period, it is an uncleanness. You will become ritually unclean before me. You are not designed to be ritually clean, unclean before me. I want you to be ritually clean before me. So imagine if God said, listen, here is a boundary. This is how you can walk in cleanliness, holiness, rightness with me as it relates to sex. But then someone just comes along in the willful rebellion of the heart and says, yeah, I know what God said, but I don't care. I'm still going to have sex with this woman in her menstrual period. He says, what you're doing there is you're beginning to transgress into the realm of just flat out rebellion. You're bringing it upon yourself to say, I know what God said, but I don't care. There's really nothing bad that happens when you have sex with a woman and her menstrual uncleanness, so I'm just going to do it anyways. And it's that little mindset right there, I think, is what's being driven at in verse 19. It's tripping into the realm of willful rebellion as it relates to sex and holiness. Verse 20, the prohibition is adultery. To lie sexually with your neighbor's wife not only flies in the face of Genesis 2, one man, one woman, one union, 
but it also breaks God's clear command that you find in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. It just flat out says it there in Exodus 20. Look down in verse 21. He furthers this. We read a prohibition about child sacrifice. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Now you read this, verse 21 sort of sticks out as a sore thumb, doesn't it? In a big long list of sexual immorality, then it's like, and don't sacrifice your children to a false god. You're like, okay, that's, that stands out as a little out of place. Molech was a Canaanite god, and the prohibition here in verse 21 forbids the illicit worship of this false god. Molech worship, we read later in the Bible, looked like this. The way that you worship God is by taking one of your living children and you burn them to death by sacrificing them on the fire. So child sacrifice in the name of false worship to a false god, that is what is being addressed here in verse 21. But what you need to know is there's a connection between illicit worship, false worship, child sacrifice, and sexual immorality. In a nutshell, if you wanted to summarize what is being said in verse 21, it is this. The Molechites of Leviticus 18 were idolaters. They're idolaters. And they were happy to sacrifice their children to a false god. Now, centuries have gone by since this chapter, but that doesn't mean Molechite worship has disappeared. In our culture, paganistic Molechite worship still takes place. People happy to bow down before a false god and sacrifice their children on the altar to that false god. Our culture is filled, in other words, with modern-day Molechites who, much like their ancestors, are also happy to sacrifice their children to a false god, namely the false god of sexual autonomy. What I mean by sexual autonomy is this. I will make the rules for how I think about sex. I will make the rules for how I have sex. I will make the rules for with whom I have sex. And I will sacrifice anything and everything on the altar of sexual autonomy because sexual autonomy is my God. If you ever wondered what a paganistic temple looked like in Canaanite days, my suggestion is you could find a living, breathing example of it up off the corner of North Bruns and Jefferson with a brick-and-mortar building that has Planned Parenthood tattooed on the side of it. Molochite worship is alive and well on the corner of North Bronze. Because people in the name of worship to their God of sexual autonomy are happy to sacrifice the womb, the fruit of their womb, their children, on that altar, all in the name of saying, nobody is going to tell me how to think about sex. Much like the idolatry of Molech led to the murder of children, so the idolatry of sexual autonomy has led to the same. On the altar of sex, men and women have and will sacrifice much to maintain allegiance to this false god. And to do this, it says, is to profane the name of your God. Thus Yahweh strongly forbids these things. Lastly, in verses 22 and 23, what are these boundaries? What are these good limits that Yahweh's given us? He further, in these two verses, further prohibited two more sexual relationships. In verse 22, he forbids homosexuality. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And then in verse 23, he prohibits bestiality. My hope is that you don't need me to explain what's going on there. Verse 23, you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall a woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Man, there's probably a whole sermon series that needs to happen to unpack what's going on here. And this morning isn't isn't the time to do it. But what we can say about verses 22 and 23 is this. Both homosexuality 
and bestiality are out of harmony with nature. They're out of harmony with the way God has designed the world. We can look to nature, the way God created creation, and learn something true about God's design. And when you look at the God's design of a male and female, according to nature, you can learn that the way sex was designed to be had and enjoyed is not for a male to be with male or female to be with female. It's for male to be with female, female to be with male. And it's not designed for male, female to be with animal. This isn't God's design. The Lord's design for sexuality doesn't exist here. So yet, yet again, Yahweh prohibited them. Guys, this is dense. This is heavy. I get it. My hunch is most of us aren't going to walk out of the parking lot going, I love, man, that was a great sermon. Bestiality, incest, polygamy. I get it. There's a weight to what we're talking about. I get it. All of us probably find ourselves on varying spectrums of how we're even trying to process this stuff right now. Friends, what you need to know is that human sexuality is a good part of the Lord's creation. It is a good part of the Lord's creation. The fact that you are a sexual being is not a mistake. It is hardwired in you because it is God's gift to you and God makes no mistakes. Human sexuality is a good part of the Lord's creation, but in a sinful world, human sexuality can be misused. It can be abused. Drink is a good gift from God to humanity, but drink can be abused. Drunkenness. Food is a good gift from God to humanity, but it can be abused. Hello, gluttony. Money is a good gift given to people by a holy good God, but it can be abused. Greed. Sex is a good gift to be enjoyed and delighted in, given by a good God to His people. But you know, as well as I know, it can and is abused. That's why the Lord is providing careful instruction. He's doing so to protect His people from misusing their sexuality and experiencing His wrath against sin as a result. So what we can do, the way we're rounding third and heading home right now, is we're going to look and see that because the Lord's careful instruction given from a good God to His people to protect His people from misusing their sexuality and giving themselves over to a habitual, unrepentant lifestyle of sin and then finding His wrath on the backside of that because they never repented of their sin. They never came to God for salvation. What we can see is that in the remaining verses of Leviticus 18 is that there is gospel hope for sexual sinners. Amen? Gospel hope for sexual sinners. This is good news. Look starting in verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that it punishes iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. For the people of the land, verse 27, who were before you, did all these abominations so that the land became unclean? Verse 29, for everyone who does any of these abominations, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. Listen, what you get from a chapter like Leviticus 18 is this, sin is serious. But even more specifically, what we can say is this, sexual sin is serious. Sexual sin is serious. Why is this the case? Because whether in our outright behavior or as Jesus would eventually come to teach in the Sermon on the Mount, even if we sin sexually in our heart, Jesus ramps up the intensity of just how serious sin is. He takes the command that I referenced earlier from Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery. There were people in Jesus' day going around, you know what, I've never done the actual physical act of sex with someone else, but their mind was given over to having sex with someone else in their mind. And he says, even that is enough to condemn you before a holy God. 
You might be able to say, I have never had sex physically with another person other than my spouse. But what you've done for all the days of your career is you undressed that other person in your co-place, the workplace, your co-worker. You undressed them in the mind and you fantasized and you undressed them and had sex with them in your mind. And Jesus says, that's a serious thing. That's a serious thing. Sexual sin is serious because it is sin that is committed against a holy God. So what do we do? What do we do? Friends, I'm telling you, verse 30 should be the verse that you grasp and walk out of here celebrating. Look at verse 30. Here's what we do. Verse 30 tells us that God gave the command. Keep my charge. What's the charge, Yahweh? Never... Practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you. Never make yourselves unclean by them. Yet, despite this charge, what do we know? The subsequent history of Israel reveals that God's people eventually fell into the exact same sexual sins as the surrounding culture. Don't do it. It's for your life. What did God's people do? I don't believe it. I'm going to do what I want. Don't do this. It's for your flourishing not to transgress this boundary. We've heard you. We don't buy it. We're going to do what we want as it relates to our sexuality. The people of God, Israel, found themselves in the world and then eventually of the world. God knew this, though. God knew his people were just as vulnerable to temptation and sin as the Canaanites. And here's what you need to know. God also knows that we, you and I, are just as equally vulnerable to temptation and sin as well. So what are we to do? We must remember who God is. We must remember who God is. Why do I say this? I say this because of the way Leviticus 18 is written. If you go up to verse 2, notice how it starts. Speak to the people of Israel. Say to them, I am the Lord your God. You go all the way down to the very end of Leviticus 18. And what does it end with? It ends with the same declaration. I am the Lord your God. Friends, Israelites, brothers and sisters here this morning, God's word is saying, don't do this. Life's not here. Flourishing is not on the outside of these prohibitions. Flourishing is found living within the good, gracious, merciful boundaries of what I'm calling you to do. But God knows this. There's going to come a day when you transgress those boundaries. And what are you going to do? You must remember who your God is. And who is our God? Exodus 34 tells us he is the Lord. He is the Lord, a God merciful. He's the Lord, a God who is gracious. He is the Lord, slow to anger. He is the Lord, abounding in steadfast love. He's the Lord, abounding in faithfulness. He's the Lord who keeps steadfast love for thousands. He is the Lord who forgives iniquity. He's the Lord who forgives transgression. He is the Lord who forgives your sin. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the forgiveness of sin that is found in the Lord includes sexual sin. You see, friends, there is gospel hope for sexual sinners. Why? Because the Lord God is a God who forgives sin. He's a God who forgives sin. 1 Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul found himself in a very Leviticus 18 situation. He found himself in the city of Corinth, in the city of Corinth, sexual immorality was ubiquitous. But notice that in 1 Corinthians 6, the pervasive sexual sin which permeated Corinthian culture was no match for the power of the gospel. In writing to the Corinthians, Paul put this question forward to these Corinthians. He said this, Do you not know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says, neither, listen, neither the sexually immoral, that's Leviticus 18, nor idolaters, that's Leviticus 18, nor adulterers, that's Leviticus 18, nor men who practice homosexuality, that's Leviticus 18, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice the gospel hope right there at the beginning of verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. Past tense. Not you now. Were, but no longer now. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Some of the Christians in Corinth, Christian men, Christian women, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, sitting in the church among the Jesus people in a culture that is permeated with the sexual perversion of the day. A very Leviticus 18 reality was the Corinthian reality, yet here were men and women characterized once by these lifestyles in their past. Some of you used to be like this, Paul said. Some of the Corinthian Christians were idolaters, adulterers, thieves, alcoholics, and homosexuals. But, says verse 11, you were washed. Washed. You were sanctified. You were made holy. You were justified, declared to be right with a holy God by his mercy and by his grace, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. When those idolaters, those adulterers, those thieves, those alcoholics, those homosexuals put their faith in Jesus, God took them just like they were, forgave their sin, reconciled them to himself, washed them clean, and made them holy. This, my friends, is why there is gospel hope for sexual sinners. And all God's people said, amen. That's why I have hope. That's why you have hope. Therefore, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can affirm two truths. One is this. You are not defined by your sexuality. You're not defined by your sexuality. You need to know this. The world wants you to be defined by your sexuality. I'm a gay Christian. I'm a lesbian Christian. I'm a cisgender Christian. I'm a transgender Christian. The scriptures would say, that's not your identity. Your identity is not your sexuality. Your identity is your in-Christness. And if you are in Christ, you are a Christian, period, full stop. Now, you might be a Christian who struggles with homosexuality. You might be a Christian who struggles with lust in the heart, committing adultery in your mind with others. You, these temptations and struggles might be very true of you, but they do not define your identity. Your identity is defined in Christ alone. Do not believe the deception of the culture, which is trying to create a place where you are only defined by your sexuality. You are not a fill-in-the-blank Christian. You're just a Christian, period, redeemed in Christ, washed, sanctified, justified. That is my identity. And then leaning out of that identity, I'm going to go and wrestle with the temptations and sin struggles that I have. You are not defined by your sexuality. The second truth we can affirm this morning is this. You are not defined by your past sexual sin. You are not defined by your present tense struggle with your sexual sin. You are free in Christ. Free in Christ. You can be set free in Christ. Do you remember the gospel hope of verse 11? Such were, were some of you. I know some of you went around sleeping with a bunch of women even though you were married. You were an adulterer, but that's not you now. You're not defined by that anymore. Some of us are shackled down by the guilt and the shame of past sexual sin. And I'm here to tell you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sin has been washed. You're not shackled by it. That sin, you've been sanctified. You've been made holy in the eyes of God. He sees Christ in your place. And as he sees Christ in your place, what you need to know is he sees you as clean, pure, holy, and righteous. Why? Because you in and of yourself are pure, clean, holy, and righteous. No, because the pure cleanness, holiness, and righteousness of Christ has been attributed to your account. And you are now sanctified, now made holy, now justified, declared to be right with God. Why? Because you're in Christ. That's good news. That's good news. 
Praise God for his washing, sanctifying, justifying grace. Friends, the proper response to all of this this morning is going to be to worship him. And my hope is that you do that very thing. Let's pray. Father, we need you in all these things. Lord, you know there are a thousand other things that could have been said this morning. So much more could have been said this morning. So much more. But Lord, I'm going to fight to trust that what has been said this morning is exactly what needed to be heard this morning. And then I'm going to trust, Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can take what has been said this morning and take a singular truth and apply it to our hearts, apply it to our lives. So, Lord, come, Holy Spirit, do this now. If nothing else is heard, Lord, would you help us to remember that there is gospel hope for sexual sinners, which means there is gospel hope for me. And before I even begin to think of anyone else, I'm going to glory in the Redeemer because gospel hope I, I, me, me the sexual sinner have found the hope of eternal redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is my hope for me, a sexual sinner. I'm just going to glory in that. Lord, would you stir worship in the hearts of my brothers and sisters as we respond to the word that has been preached. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen.